When we get glorified bodies, we'll all be able to sing like that. Can I get a witness? That'll be good. So to sound like James and Cliff would be awesome. Hey, you brought a Bible, say amen. And uh, let me invite you to open it with me to Luke's Gospel. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, that's kind of how we roll here. We just pick a book and go verse by verse through it. It uh, keeps us from skipping difficult parts and making sure that we're keeping the main thing the main thing. So in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 25 through 37 will be our text this morning. So let me invite you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 25 is where we'll start. You got it there in front of you? Say yes. All right, let's look at it together. The Bible says, And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, uh, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to a place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said to Jesus, The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Let's bow together. Father, it's with great privilege we open up the scripture again today. And we have confidence this is your word sent to us from heaven. You wrote a book and gave us the opportunity to read it and hear what you desire from all of humanity. And God, whenever we speak about humanity, it goes from the general right down to the specific. Every individual is called to have a relationship with you. You created us for yourself, and apart from you, we do not know satisfaction or joy, and our souls run aimlessly with the wind, never finding rest or settlement. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name this morning that some of those hearts that have been running in the wind would find their home in their relationship with you. And God, I pray this morning that you'd fill with your Holy Spirit, grant grace to preach how you desire to speak what you desire so that when we leave this place, we can all say we've definitely been in your presence. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen, and you can be seated. You know, there's a preacher in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. He makes this comment, Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. Listen to what he says. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Now, many of you have already heard about uh, something that happened at our house, but I'm going to share with you anyway because it sets up where we're headed perfectly. Our family recently uh, was given a dog, which our children chose to name Lily. Uh, which, by the way, I'm not a dog fan. If you want one, we'd love to give you one. Are y'all all right? But uh, Lily lives in Lula, Georgia. Y'all don't act all sad about that. People awe and good grief, but it's a dog. But anyway, so uh, 
Lily lives in Lula with us. She's a mutt dog. We really don't know how much hound or retriever is actually in her. However, regardless of her pedigree, I'm confident that she does not think about the same things we as a family think about. Her day is filled with thoughts about where she's going to sleep, what she's going to eat, how many holes in the yard she's going to dig, how much pine straw she's going to kick out of the... I'll chill out now. But anyway, you get my point, right? She never thinks about deeper things like eternity. She never ponders what is going to happen to her after she breathes her last breath. Now, why does she not do this? It's because she, like all other animals, were not wired by God to consider eternity. You and I, as humans, however, have eternity set in our hearts. We are wired to think about life and what will happen after we die. God has put that in each one of us. That is why a person cannot be fundamentally satisfied with their personal endeavors, achievements, or possessions. You cannot reach a true state of satisfaction in life focused on that which is only temporary. Now, why is that? It's because you were not created for a temporary existence. You were created with eternity in your heart. And as a result, true satisfaction in a person's life only occurs when the eternal vacuum of the soul is filled with a relationship with the one true and eternal God. See, outside of a real, genuine, dynamic relationship with God, even a quote-unquote successful life will be filled with futility, vanity, and emptiness. You know, God has given you and I an itch for eternity that only he can scratch. Pastor James McDonald writes in his book, Vertical Church, and I quote, This eternal longing is given by the Almighty and separates us from all other created beings. A gift universally given to humankind that lives in each member of your family. Each person on your street feels the emptiness deeply, even if he or she cannot articulate it. Every single citizen of the community surrounding you and your church aches this moment to have the cavity filled. The searching deep in our souls is a hunger that food can never feed, clothing can never cover, and shelter will never warm. At times it becomes a ravenous longing that demands satisfaction beyond our accomplishments and accumulations. Billionaires around the globe are miserable because in them this longing goes unfulfilled. While certain single parents with hungry children in mud huts are overflowing with joy because they have found this eternity in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You know, this eternity set in our hearts is the reason so often we hear individuals ask the question in the scripture, how can I inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler asked in Matthew's gospel, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nicodemus in John's gospel chapter 3 came to Jesus asking the question of eternity. And today we note a lawyer speaking up from the crowds asking the same question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, this same type of question continues to draw the spotlight on the stage of every human's mind. So how does Jesus answer the question? What is the question? How does a person inherit eternal life? Now, the Lord, through this text of Scripture, gives us two main thoughts that I want to put on your heart this morning. And I want you to see the first point that I'm about to give you. You're going to find that the law demands great things from us if we desire to live eternally in heaven. It's almost going to sound like I'm preaching that in order to go to heaven, you uh, have to live up to the standard of the holy law. But hang on, because grace flows at the end of the message, all right? 
So here's the first point I want to give you this morning concerning how to inherit eternal life. Point number one, you must love God and others flawlessly. You must love God and others flawlessly. Look again at your Bible, verse 26 and 27. And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, uh, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, notice what he says, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. Now, as we listen in on the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer, we're given the answer to how a person can inherit eternal life. The lawyer quotes the two main laws of the Old Testament. So we kind of break them down for just a moment to see what the standard of the law calls for a person to do. Notice the law begins with a need to show love. And this is interesting. The word love in the Greek New Testament here is the word agape. It is a word that means unconditional and unstoppable love. This actually magnifies a person's need to take complete pleasure in someone. In this case, in God and in your neighbor. So what should this love look like practically? You want to inherit eternal life? What should the love look like practically? Well, the law demands four ways that this agape, unconditional, unstoppable love should display itself in your life. So let me give you those four ways quickly. The law demands that we take complete, flawless pleasure in God first with all of our heart. Now, what exactly is our heart? Well, after doing a study on how Luke used the word heart throughout his gospel, I found what Luke was getting at. You know, the heart is the place where we reason within ourselves. It's the place where our thoughts find their home. The heart is where our true passions actually exist. If we want to know what our true passions are, Jesus teaches that we should look at where our treasure is located. That is, where our time, our attention, our finances, and our talents are spent displays the true attitude of our heart. As well, the heart is who we're talking to when we talk to ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever talk to yourself? Yeah, I do too, just not in public. Y'all with me? Because if you do that in public, you got issues. You can do it in private all you want to. But whenever you're talking to yourself, who are you actually talking to? You're talking to your heart. You know, I also discovered in Luke's gospel that the heart can be weighed down with emptiness, drunkenness, and worry. The heart is where doubt about God, Jesus, and his word actually shows up and displays itself. The heart is our inner self where pride and hardness to the things of God actually occur. You know, the law, however, demands that your heart, your inner self, your seat of reasoning and your passion find complete, unconditional, flawless love in the God of heaven and earth. The law goes a step further. The law demands that we take complete, flawless pleasure in God with all of our soul. You know, in Luke's gospel, we find that your soul is synonymous with your life. So we're commanded by Jesus not to worry about our life, what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear or put on. That is, in order to inherit eternal life, there cannot be one corner of your life which does not take complete, flawless pleasure in the Lord. Every single fiber of your life has to be dedicated wholly and perfectly to loving God. The law goes a step further and thirdly demands that we take complete, flawless pleasure in God with all of our strength. Now, the term strength is interesting. It actually speaks of a person's total capacity to do something. It magnifies the energy that we possess as individuals. Therefore, the law demands that the entirety of our energies, the total capacity that you and I possess, should be devoted to taking complete, flawless pleasure in Almighty God. 
The law goes a step further. Fourthly, demanding that we take complete flawless pleasure in God with all of our mind. Now, the term mind speaks of our way of thinking. Where the heart is a description of the inner self, our mind is what receives information. Ultimately, we're talking here about our intellectual pursuits in life. Our minds should be focused completely and flawlessly on pursuing the things of God and not the lust of the world. So think about that tall order for just a moment uh, concerning the first portion of the law. Your inner self, are y'all listening? Say yes. Your inner self, your external life, your total capacity of energy, and your intellectual pursuits must take complete and flawless pleasure in the God of all creation. That means there cannot for a single second in your life, there cannot for a single nanosecond in your life be a time where you have not completed this action without error. If you have done this perfectly, you're on your way to inheriting eternal life. However, the law of God doesn't stop there. Notice the scripture says, and your neighbor as yourself. So this unconditional flawless pleasure we take in God actually expresses itself in the unconditional flawless pleasure we take in serving others. Want to know how much you love God? Answer the question, how do you love other people? That is how much you love the Lord. Now, in order to inherit eternal life, our inner self can never speak negatively of another person. In order to inherit eternal life, our life can never put personal needs above another person's. In order to inherit eternal life, the sum total of our energies must be devoted to serving those who are in need. In order to inherit eternal life, our minds can never ponder hatred, envy, sexual desires, or jealousy toward another person. The question of every human on the face of the earth at some time deals with eternity. The Bible makes that plain to us in Romans chapter 1, that all of creation declares the glory of God, that his invisible attributes are actually known by creation. However, men, although they see creation, deny the fact that there is a creator and often suppress the truth. That means that they push it down. It does not mean that the question of eternity was not in their heart to begin with. But they denied the Lord. They denied the fact that there is a God. They pushed down the reality of who he is. But no doubt, in some form or fashion, every individual at one time in their lives have asked the question, how can I inherit eternal life? And the law demands that we love God and we love others flawlessly without error. Our love toward God and others must have always been, must always be perfect. And it is true of you, all of these things that have been said, if this is true of you, then you can inherit eternal life. If it is not true, then you cannot inherit eternal life. Now, y'all still with me say yes? Because here's the reality. I went through all of this and uh, was typing it out even in my own personal study. And I was thinking to myself, man, I messed up there. Wrote the next one. Love with all your strength. Messed up there. Love with all your mind. Messed up there. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know heaven is a perfect place? When I ask you a question, you respond with an answer. How many of you know heaven is a perfect place? It is perfect. Listen, 
If you're going to go to heaven into a perfect place, then you must be perfect or you will jack the whole thing up. Do y'all hear what I'm getting at? So we have a massive issue. And the issue is that what the law demands, no person has lived up to. So we are all imperfect. None of us deserve eternal life. Now, it's interesting. Because, you know, as I go through this and I'm studying it myself and I'm typing stuff down, I'm like, messed up there, messed up there, messed up there. I didn't do so bad right there. It's amazing how all of a sudden your entire attitude can change when you begin to look at the law as a standard by which, okay, if I can attain that standard and be perfect, then God will accept me. And so we begin to try to justify ourselves, which is exactly what the man does here, which brings me to point number two. You cannot justify your life before the Lord. You can't do it. Look at verse 29 in your Bible. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, the lawyer knew that he had not loved God and others flawlessly. Even as the lawyer quoted the law, his own conscience bore witness to the fact that he had not loved God and his neighbor perfectly. Conviction began to set in as his own personal guilt in breaking the law was quickly washing over him. So then he begins to try and defend himself. And in a single moment before the Lord he sought to justify his own life by looking for a loophole in the law. It's interesting, law, you're looking for a loophole in the law? There's a funny joke in there. Notice what he says, who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead and by chance a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Now a priest was an individual called by God to serve as a mediator between God and humanity. Uh, the priest was an expert in the law of God and most assuredly had memorized the law which said we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. However, looking at the man half dead and probably not wanting to defile himself, he chose to ignore the great command of God by ignoring the man who was in need. Verse 32, likewise the Levite also, when he came past the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Levites were like assistant priests. While he would not have been as consumed with ritual purity as the actual priest, he still chose to ignore the great command of God by ignoring the man in need. And then verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, the Samaritans were vehemently despised by most Jews. They were considered... Um, half-breeds. They rejected them. They actually would walk around Samaria when traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. They avoided the place at all costs. Therefore, the fact that Jesus' story highlights a Samaritan as the hero of the text most likely was an indictment against the lawyer who was a racist and did not like Samaritans. But the Samaritan did what neither the priest nor the Levite would do. He was moved by love for his neighbor and treated the man the way he would want to be treated if it were him lying there half dead, robbed, and in the ditch. Verse 36. 
And which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now the lawyer was silenced in this moment by the simple fact that his attempt to justify himself before the Lord just did not work. He had broken the law and therefore the demand of the law of God was too high for him to reach. So if you want to inherit eternal life, you must love God and others flawlessly, and there's no way you can justify yourself before the Lord. He knows your heart. Now, the irony of the entire text is that any attempt, are y'all listening, say yes, any attempt to try and justify yourself by God's perfect law is an impossibility. We're supposed to love God flawlessly with our whole hearts, yet the prophet Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jesus says in Matthew 15 and 19, for out of our heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanderers. These are the things which defile the man. We're supposed to love God flawlessly with all of our soul, yet Ezekiel 18 and 20 tells us the soul that sins will surely die. Paul writes in Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned. Who has sinned? All have sinned and fallen short of God's holy standard. We're supposed to love God flawlessly with all of our strength. Romans 3 and 11 teaches us that there is no one who seeks after God. That is, your energies nor my energies are ever perfectly devoted to seeking after the God of heaven and earth. We're supposed to love God as well. The Bible teaches with all of our minds. Ephesians 4 and 18 describes people as being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So based upon the sole fact that it is an impossibility to love God and others flawlessly, this would mean that man's attempt to inherit eternal life by the law is also an empty pursuit because it is absolutely impossible. Therefore, no one Are y'all listening? Say yes. No one can inherit eternal life by living up to the law of God because we are all guilty. Every one of us. Our guilt is therefore damnable by God, the righteous judge, to hell. In fact, it has been said before, we do not break the law only. The law actually breaks us. Now, the lawyer, after hearing Jesus speak to him, should have immediately said, I have not kept the law perfectly. I have not loved my neighbor perfectly. He should have pleaded for mercy in that moment, but instead, he sought to justify himself. That's what some of you are doing in here this morning. You hear the truth that you're a sinner, and yet you sit there and try to justify your own life. Not as bad as he is, not as bad as she is, not as bad as they are. And in the context of justifying yourself, that is the epitome of a prideful heart. And the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The lawyer missed God because his head was so prideful. His heart was so hard. He would never come to the Lord asking for mercy. He was very much unlike the tax collector in Luke's gospel, who the Bible says stood some distance away from the Lord unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And guess who received mercy? The tax collector from the Lord. See, the law of God is unique in the fact that it shows us we are sinners and drives us to desire God's mercy. So what it is there for, the law of God is like a mirror 
When you look into it, you see how disheveled your life really is. You see your sin in light of a perfect holy God. And in seeing that sin, the goal is not to rearrange it. The goal is for you not to justify the fact that it's there. The goal of the perfect law of God is to drive you to humility on your knees where you say, God, I do not deserve eternity with you. I need your mercy. God then, in the humble life, pours out his mercy. You know, eternity is set in the heart of all mankind. The law drives us to God for mercy. But listen closely. Where do we receive the mercy? You receive it at Mount Calvary where Jesus came lived a sinless life, went up to a cross, and there on the cross died for your sin. God the Father treated Christ the Son as if he had committed every sin of every person who has ever breathed the breath of life. The Bible says in 1 John that Jesus died, listen, for the sins of the whole world. Don't make that say something it doesn't. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. His sacrifice is sufficient to save anyone who will come. And eternity has been placed in our heart. The law of God has been given to us. Our conscience bear witness to the law of God that we are guilty. And the law of God is designed, listen, to drive us to the feet of the Lord Jesus and plead for mercy. What so often happens is God put eternity in a person's heart. The law of God shows them their sin. But instead of allowing it to drive them from mercy to mercy, what it does is it drives them to become more hard, justify even their own lives and ultimately perish without the Lord Jesus Christ and split hell wide open. And it ain't because you didn't have an opportunity. So you can't be justified by living up to the law because the law is perfect, holy, and righteous, Paul says in the book of Romans. And you and I are not perfect, we are not holy, and we are not righteous. The law of God is not designed to wash our sin away. The law of God is designed to show us our sin. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians, that the law of God is a tutor teaching us, pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. So whenever we come to Christ, we're saved not by any act of our own, but we are saved by the very fact that Jesus died in our place as our substitute. He was buried and resurrected. And when you come to grips with that, then that moment... From heaven's throne, mercy is poured out upon you, and you are absolutely forgiven of all your sin. And the Bible teaches that you, in the moment of salvation, are y'all listening? In the moment of salvation, God, right then and there, declares you to be righteous. Declaration from heaven. What did I say heaven was? I forgot a moment ago. Starts with a P, ends with an perfect. Y'all with me? What is heaven? It is perfect, and only perfect people get there, but you and I are not perfect. Therefore, we need someone to make us perfect, and that's what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And when you repent of your sin, grab hold of Christ, in that moment, God declares you perfect, fit for eternity, able now to enter into the glories of heaven and not mess it up. That's why the Bible says it's by grace that you're saved. Grace, that's why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. Grace that you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The soul which has eternity set upon it will never be satisfied with what this temporal world has to offer. 
So only, listen, only can be satisfied with a genuine dynamic relationship with the one true eternal God of creation. Look at the preacher, eyeball to eyeball. Listen, just talking to you from my heart at this point, but some of you in the building, you are seeking purpose in life through earthly relationships. If I can have that girl, if I can have that guy, if I can have that marriage, everything will be right. No, it won't. You need the Lord. It's like uh, just cause it came to my brain, which could be good or bad. But Jesus came and declared the good news of who he was to a Samaritan woman. She's hanging out there by the uh, water well. Comes up to her. can think of what that was. A sign language for water well. And he comes up to her and talks to her. She's like, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. Remember that hatred between Jews and Samaritans? You're a Jewish man. Why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and a woman. What are you doing talking to me? Give me a drink. And then eventually, what does the Lord do? He reveals the law to her. Could call your husband. Remember, he mentions the fact that she has had five husbands and the one that she is with now is not her own. What does he do? He shows her the law. You shall not commit adultery. But there it is. Boom. Six times you've broken it. He says, if you knew who I was standing here with you, you would have asked me for living water and I would have given it to you. And in that moment, her eyes are open to the fact of who the Lord is. And by the way, just for free, because I find it crazy interesting that Jesus would reveal himself to some unnamed Samaritan woman to begin with. First of all, the Bible says she took off, ran into Samaria, come see a man, told me everything I ever knew. Some of you are up in the house, man, and you are seeking uh, satisfaction in this life. And so many different wells that end up becoming empty and dry because you have not come to the source of life, the water of life, the person of Jesus. It's only there that you'll be satisfied. Y'all still with me? Say yes. And some people are like, well, I'm just too bad. I failed so much. Here's what's awesome. Paul the apostle, he testifies of his own life. Here's what he says. He says, I was the worst of all sinners, chief of all sinners. Matter of fact, if you just did a quick little record of his life, you would find out that he hated Christians, he hated Jesus, and he even sought to have them murdered. So if you wanted to think about somebody who was far from God, Paul was like, I was the furthest you could possibly get. But God, listen, God chose to save me the furthest away from him to show the extent of his reach in saving everybody. So Paul the Apostle is like, if he can save me, he can save you. And some of you are in the building, you're like, well, I've just jacked it up. I messed up so much, there's no way that I can be saved. Check this out. God is actually glorified. Are y'all listening? That's another question. Y'all listening? God is actually glorified in declaring imperfect sinners justified in his son Jesus. Awesome. Salvation is a work of God which recognizes his death, burial, and resurrection as sufficient to save whoever calls upon his name for mercy. Some of you need that this morning. So let's bow our heads together.